With his unique perspective on the medical legal system, here's Victor Cotton. Welcome to the Law and Medicine Podcast. Today's topic is the utter failure of medical legal education. Medical legal education, or what has been passed off as medical legal education, is actually propaganda. And taken as a whole, it's conveyed far more misinformation than it has information. I'm going to show you the proof of that in a minute, but I first want to explain why this is the case. And the answer is very simple. Almost everyone who provides medical legal education depends on malpractice lawsuits for their livelihood. Plaintiff lawyers, defense lawyers, and everyone else who's part of the system, they're all in it together. And every lawsuit they help us prevent takes money out of their pockets. And there's only so much of that that most people are willing to do. And just to clarify, I'm not saying that this makes them bad people. A lot of them are bad people, but that's not what I'm saying today. I'm simply saying that when you make your living off of something, you're generally not interested in eliminating that something. And unfortunately, our failure to appreciate this has completely compromised medical legal education and with it our ability to understand and avoid medical malpractice lawsuits. The problem is so extensive that I almost never meet a physician who correctly understands the most basic legal principles. But it's actually worse than that. Our thinking has been so corrupted by years of misinformation that much of what we think we know is actually incorrect. And I did a little study to prove it. Each year, thousands of physicians visit our website, which is lawandmed.com. So I set up a survey, invited physicians to participate, and about 300 did so. The cohort included almost every specialty, male and female, young and old. They averaged about 20 years in clinical practice. About half of them had been sued for malpractice, and about 20% had served as an expert witness in a malpractice case. So the group had a good amount of experience. The survey asked five questions about the standard of care. And I focused on the standard of care because it's the benchmark that we use to define malpractice. And here's how it works. If you delivered the standard of care, then you did not commit malpractice. And if you did not deliver the standard of care, then you did commit malpractice. And as a result, if you're going to understand only one medical legal concept, it must be the standard of care because the entire malpractice system revolves around it. So we asked five questions about the standard of care. The questions were true-false, and random guessing would therefore give you a score of 50%. Anything above 50% would indicate that we know something about the standard of care, and a score of less than 50% would indicate that our cumulative knowledge is negative. The first question asked, true or false, the patient's outcome is relevant in determining whether he received the standard of care. The patient's outcome is relevant in determining whether he received the standard of care. In order to answer this question, we need only to focus on the fact that it's called the standard of care. 
because it's the care that's held to a standard. It's not called the standard of outcome, nor is it called the standard of result, because the outcome and the result are irrelevant. The only thing that matters in determining whether a patient received the standard of care is the care that he received and whether it met the applicable standard. It couldn't be any easier. So the question asked, true or false, the patient's outcome is relevant in determining whether he received the standard of care. The correct answer is false, and 22% of us answered correctly, meaning that we would have been much better off had we randomly guessed. The second question asked, the standard of care is determined by what most physicians would do in a given situation. The standard of care is determined by what most physicians would do in a given situation. True or false? So, let's suppose we have a situation where the scientific literature is not in agreement as to the best approach. Some studies suggest surgery, and other studies suggest medication. And we also have two reputable guidelines, one recommending surgery and the other recommending medication, a situation which is not at all uncommon. So, which approach is the standard of care? If it's determined by what the majority would do, how do you know what the majority prefers? If you call 10 experts and 6 recommend surgery, are the 4 who recommend medication outside the standard of care, even though they have studies and a guideline supporting their position? You see the problem this creates. Fortunately, none of it's necessary because the standard of care is not determined by what a majority would do. It's determined by the principles of science, and if there's disagreement within the scientific community, then both options are within the standard of care. And it has to be that way, because otherwise we'd be declaring that differences of opinion are not permissible, a position which runs contrary to the very idea of science. So the question asked, the standard of care is determined by what most physicians would do in a given situation. The correct answer is false, and 16% of us answered correctly. So, once again, we would have been much better off to randomly guess. The problem is that when your thinking's been corrupted by 20 years of trial lawyer propaganda, you can't randomly guess. The next question asked, The use of a less expensive, less effective treatment can be within the standard of care when managing a patient who has limited financial resources. The use of a less expensive, less effective treatment can be within the standard of care when managing a patient who has limited financial resources, true or false. And the key to answering this question is to recognize that the standard of care is not the same as the gold standard. Many people use those terms interchangeably, but they are separate concepts. The gold standard is the best treatment while the standard of care is the best available treatment. The gold standard is a figure of speech that has no legal significance, while the standard of care is a technical term that defines our legal obligation. The gold standard applies in an ideal world 
while the standard of care applies in the real world. Now, if the situation is such that the gold standard is available, then the standard of care and the gold standard are one and the same. However, there will be times when the gold standard is not available, perhaps due to the patient's insurance coverage or personal preferences. And in those situations, the standard of care defaults to whatever is available, and that could be our second, our third, or our fourth choice. What I'm saying here is that depending on the circumstances, the standard of care might be world-class care or it might be third-world care. But as long as it's the best available option, it is the standard of care. So the question asked, the use of a less expensive, less effective treatment can be within the standard of care when managing a patient who has limited financial resources. The correct answer is true, and 54% of us gave that answer, which is within the margin of error for guessing. The next question asked, committing a medical error, such as inadvertently leaving a sponge behind during surgery, is never within the standard of care. Committing a medical error, such as inadvertently leaving a sponge behind during surgery, is never within the standard of care. True or false? And this one's a little more difficult, but just as foundational. Let's suppose we perform surgery, and we do everything as it's supposed to be done, but we inadvertently leave a sponge behind. Now, if you're a patient safety expert, you're probably yelling, never event, at the top of your lungs. But that's not what I'm asking. And by the way, that term, never event, is an oxymoron. Something that's never cannot be an event. So I'm not asking if this doctor committed an oxymoron. My question is whether inadvertently leaving a sponge behind is always outside the standard of care, or could it be within the standard of care? Well, the temptation is to focus on the sponge, but that's the result. The lost sponge is the result of the care, not the care. And if you recall back in the first question, I emphasized that the result is irrelevant to the standard of care. And at the time, it seemed fairly obvious. But then I asked this question, and everyone focuses on the sponge, which is the result rather than the care. So I'll say it again. In order to determine whether something is within the standard of care, we must focus on the care and determine whether it met the applicable standard. So what did I say about the care? I said, Let's suppose we perform surgery and we do everything as it's supposed to be done. Okay, how does that sound? We did everything as it was supposed to be done. To me, it sounds pretty good. How else are we supposed to do it? So the care here is acceptable and it's therefore within the standard of care. The law is very clear on this. Because we are human, we will make mistakes, and that's true even when we do everything properly. In the law, these are known as simple mistakes, and they are an unfortunate byproduct of the standard of care. What I'm saying here is that the standard of care sometimes produces mistakes.
And while I'm not saying that those mistakes are easy to defend, I am saying that they do not automatically mean that the standard of care has been violated. But if we fail to see that and we focus only on the sponge, which is the result, and we say that the care doesn't matter because a lost sponge is automatically malpractice, then we are holding ourselves to a standard of perfection, not a standard of care. So the question asked, committing a medical error, such as inadvertently leaving a foreign object behind during surgery, is never within the standard of care. And the correct answer is false, because there are situations where it could be within the standard of care. And 12% of us answered correctly. This question was more difficult, but if anyone had ever told us to focus on the care rather than the result, it would have been fairly easy. The last question asked, in some situations, the standard of care can be violated by failing to obtain the patient's informed consent. In some situations, the standard of care can be violated by failing to obtain the patient's informed consent. True or false? The key to answering this question is to recognize that the standard of care and informed consent are completely separate legal doctrines. The standard of care has nothing to do with informed consent, and informed consent has nothing to do with the standard of care. Informed consent relates to a conversation that I have prior to delivering care, and the standard of care relates to the care that I subsequently deliver. If I fail to obtain the patient's consent, he could sue me and he could win regardless of whether I delivered the standard of care. And if I fail to deliver the standard of care, the patient could sue me and he could win regardless of whether I obtained his consent. They are completely separate and totally unrelated legal doctrines. So the question asked, in some situations, the standard of care can be violated by failing to obtain the patient's informed consent. Well, the standard of care has nothing to do with informed consent, so the correct answer is false, and 53% of us answered correctly. In tabulating the overall results, we had a cumulative knowledge of zero on two of the questions, and on the other three, a strong majority picked the wrong answer. And as a result, we'd be much better off to ignore everything that we've been told and make decisions based on our own sense of right and wrong, because that's ultimately what the law is about. And if you're reluctant to do that, then you should just flip a coin because that's much more likely to produce the correct answer than relying on 20 years of lies. There is a third option, which involves reforming medical legal education to root out the conflicts of interest. And there was a time, perhaps 20 years ago, when I thought that idea had a chance, but I'm now convinced that it's never going to happen. The sad reality is that medical legal education is almost completely in the hands of people who are part of the malpractice industry, and they aggressively defend their livelihoods against anyone who tries to tell doctors the truth. 
The situation reminds me of the third movie in the Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator series. The movie was Judgment Day, and the storyline was that the internet was under attack by a virus. And in an attempt to stop the virus, they activated an experimental software program called Skynet. They hoped that Skynet would stop the virus, but what they didn't realize was that Skynet was the virus. And by the time they figured it out, Skynet had taken complete control and began destroying humanity. And I think we made a similar mistake when we gave control of medical legal education to the same people who were, in fact, causing the problem. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to Victor Cotton, physician, attorney, and founder of Law & Medicine. If you'd like to learn more about us or support our efforts, we invite you to visit our website at lawandmed.com. We offer a variety of online educational courses for which you can earn Category 1 CME credit. Many of our courses can be used to meet your malpractice insurance company's requirements for a policy discount. And if you receive a CME allowance from your employer, we can provide you with a receipt which can be used to obtain reimbursement. This has been a production of Law & Medicine, Hershey, Pennsylvania. All rights are reserved.